Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello and welcome everybody. This is episode number 78. It's great to be with you once again. This is actually my first planned episode, at least as of about a month ago. But if you go back and listen to episode 77 and the follow-up 77A, you'll hear all about the news that came up and that I felt compelled to cover. Well, otherwise, this podcast has been dark for all of 2023. This is my first episode other than those two episodes since December of 2022. I'll explain a little bit more about kind of my plans for the podcast after my interview, but I just want to say I did not intend for it to be on sabbatical for quite this long, and I'm very excited for this opportunity to really, in my mind, to officially bring it back, and that is an interview with a Broadway musician talking about the pit. And in this case, I'm talking to a very recent Tony nominee, a 2023 Tony nominee for Best Orchestration. And that would be Dominic Falacaro, who is a co-arranger as well as the music director for the also Tony-nominated musical that is currently on Broadway called And Juliet. And Juliet was a nominee for Best Musical. It was a nominee for Best Book. But it was also a nominee for Best Orchestrations. And Dominic Falacaro was one of those orchestrators. So And Juliet is what you would call a jukebox musical. The songs for the show are not written specifically for the musical, but they existed in pop culture prior to the musical. And the musical is tailored to these songs, which have been arranged in such a way. Well, there's an interesting component to that, though. It's not just random pop songs. They all happen to be the the creative work of one songwriter named Max Martin. I'm going to be talking to Dominic about how Max Martin was involved with the show and also the whole process of coming up with these songs, the creative process, the collaboration, and of course, the work being done in the pit. We'll talk about the pit musicians. We'll talk about the evolution of the pit to get to its final product. One remarkable aspect of about Dominic that you'll hear in this interview is that Even though he is a Broadway arranger, orchestrator, and music director for the show, this is actually his very first Broadway work. Now, he's been a professional musician in other aspects of life, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But this is something, if you're aspiring to be in the pit and you're wondering, well, how how much work do I have to do to get to such a status? Well, if you know the right people and you do the right work, perhaps... Not that much at all. So let's go ahead and get into it. Here is my conversation with Dominic Falacaro. Oh, it's my pleasure today to be talking to Dominic Falacaro. Dominic, thank you for taking time to chat with me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So Dominic, just give us a, a little bit of an overview of what it is that uh, that you do, and uh, you know what what kind of projects are going on lately. Sure. So I'm a producer, composer, multi instrumentalist, but right now what my main focus is is I'm the music director and provided orchestrations for Anne Juliet, which is now on Broadway. Great. I always like to ask. There's several things I like to ask guests when they're on here, and the first one is. How did your music journey begin? You know, you don't have to give us a, you know, the the novel version, but just kind of in general, how did you get into music? When did you realize this might be something you can do professionally? And when did theater enter your life? So I started playing piano in kindergarten. Um, and I think I still do it because I was never really forced to do it. I just sort of developed uh, an enjoyment of sitting at the piano and bashing stuff out on it. Um, I had really amazing uh, piano teachers, which I owe a huge debt of gratitude to. And I started playing classical music. And um, in high school, I started to get more into jazz and pop music. And I wanted to be able to translate all the, all the time I'd spent in piano to try and learn the stuff that I was listening to and I got super into jazz music and pop music and then began taking it seriously and went to uh, study piano uh, jazz piano at the new school in New York mm-hmm. um, and so that really kind of developed the, the the transition to being m- more interested in this professionally and trying to make a life out of it and as far as theater, you know, it's interesting because I, uh, in high school, I just kind of gobbled up any music that I possibly could. I played in any band, I did any choir, I did anything that was music, anything that I could possibly do that was music and not uh, an academic class, I was full on board with. Uh, and so I I did all of our um, all of our high school musicals and stuff, South Pacific and other things. So I had like a toe dipped in it, but never like immersed myself in it. Uh, and so theater sort of came to me much, much later, uh, in New York. So I've been working on Anne Juliet, uh, since 2017, but it's the first theater thing that I've really been immersed in. And it's been fantastic to kind of like, kind of see it all, uh, as a first time and kind of learn my way through it. It's been really, really fantastic. So have you, have you had any other roles in musicals in New York? Uh, so nothing else for, for musicals, but coming to New York, I feel like I was always trying to gig as much as possible. I was, you know, playing in jazz groups with anyone that would have me. Um, I was playing in other sort of bands. I remember it like just, you know, whether it's rock bands or other cover bands or just anything, I feel like, uh, one of the, something that was really important to me and still, still is, but the, the ability to say yes to, a lot of things because you never know where it takes you. I mean, Anne Juliet came into my life because um, I began making music with someone that was very passionate about children's music. Hmm. Um, and we had done a few records together. The third one that we did together won a Grammy in 2016. And through that, we started to uh, write music for Sesame Street uh, because uh, Bill Sherman, the uh, supervisor of Sesame Street uh, kind of noticed what we were up to. And then Anne Juliet was a project that had come into his stratosphere at that point. And then we sort of hit it off and he brought me into the the world of Anne Juliet. So you never know kind of what path leads to what thing, you know? 
um, it, it's it's so uh, yeah, it's so much chance and opportunity and just being prepared for it. Yeah, that is a that's a common thread, you know. Uh, it, it, well, I, I like that you know you. It sounds like you know you did you never had like theater you know as kind of like top priority i've got to succeed in this arena but you but it was all about music and it was all about being open to opportunities exactly exactly i mean i always loved the idea i mean like any before i was in broadway anytime i encountered people that were immersed in kind of playing in pits and stuff those are very like consummate musicians because they would float from show to show or if they were subbing on a bunch of stuff, just the ability to kind of like sponge music like that. And that quickly is, is a real finesse kind of skill. So like if you're meeting, uh, if you're meeting musicians like that, they're at a certain caliber. Um, so I always enjoyed kind of hearing about those kind of adventures and playing with those musicians, but it wasn't a particular focus of mine. And it's been an amazing thing to, an, an amazing community to become a part of. Um, but it's it is one of the last sort of like bastions in New York City of like union musician work and like it, it's it's a real pillar of like what musicianship can be. Yeah. Let's talk about Anne Juliet. Um, yeah. I, so I have a few you know a few more questions that I'll I'll ask you about your approach. But you mentioned Bill Sherman, and mm-hmm. uh, he is he you and he are credited as the co-arrangers of this musical so what are how do you dissect your roles and are are you all doing the same thing and just kind of you know so how, how would you describe what you do versus what he does um so i mean shout out to bill sherman for even bringing me into this crazy universe it's been amazing and i think he uh you know we <laughs> we we met on the set of Sesame Street when I was watching one of my songs uh, get taped and we just really hit it off. He asked what sort of things I'd been up to and what I was interested in and for me it was pop music, pop production, working with artists and songwriters and developing that kind of stuff and I told him I was like you know the real like top of Mount Olympus is Max Martin, those kind of folks Um, and he must have tucked that away and we we had uh, drinks or dinner a few weeks later and he asked what I'd be interested in working on Anne Juliet, uh, a musical with all the songs of Max Martin. And I, of course, was interested, but in the back of my head, I was like, I don't know if Max is going to show up. And then he called the next day and was like, let's have breakfast with Max tomorrow, this place and this time. Mm -hmm. So it became very real, very fast. And I think Bill and I from then have really found a simpatico creatively of, he is a master of 10,000 feet. He is, Mm -hmm. uh, and and was really helpful in sort of showing me uh, the tools in my tool belt and how to use them for what works on stage. There were certain things that uh, arrangements or things that we tried in early workshops where immediately like his smell test for what would work or what served the story or kind of what would uh, get applause or what sort of things would work in the context of a narrative. He immediately had a sense of what was going on. And then from there, it's the two of us sitting by a piano and kind of bashing stuff out and me playing options and him sort of going through them. And we're, we're always sort of tag team side by side at a piano. And then when it comes to the arranging and the orchestrating, it's so wild because you don't want to do, there's so much work to be done, 
but you don't want to front load it too much because when you're in the workshop stage or rehearsal stage, songs can entire songs can come and go. So you want to arrange three songs for a whole bunch of musicians that end up end up leaving. So you end up doing this pretty late in the process. You're like in your later stage of rehearsals. So I mean that period of time is crazy because Bill and I are in rehearsals and then you sort of like once they're you know rehearsing choreography for a number you run out we have like another room with a keyboard and our whole finale set up and then it's you're trying to get as much work done before you're summoned back into uh to the other room so it's always sort of a side-by-side process of uh both stuff that happens around a piano with actors there are certain things that get worked out kind of in a workshop mode and then there are certain things that sort of we take um and and handle ourselves and kind of present one of the one of the coolest things about this process and uh, one of the most amazing things about kind of working with Max and having a musician as sort of the top creative of a show is the fact that they put so much both faith in us to work on it and gave us so much kind of runway to try stuff. Uh, at the early part of this, we were able to do a music lab um, where we were able to be uh, to show Max kind of what we were up to. Like we orchestrated the first... I don't know, handful of the the songs in the show and then Roar, one of our, our, our big numbers in the show. We brought a band into a studio for a whole week. Bill and I were able to really like try stuff with our orchestrations and see how it translated with our size band and then bring Max in on the last day and kind of ask him what he thought and then get his feedback in real time before we orchestrated the rest of the 20 songs in the show. So that was also supremely helpful in the process. Right. Great. Um, so I'm going to come back to, of course, orchestration in the, in the pit just for a moment, but, uh, I didn't know till yesterday about, you know, Max Martin and this show. I, I listened to the cast recording. I haven't, I haven't been to New York in, I guess, five years now. So I have, you know, I haven't seen any of the shows that are, that are current. And, um, yeah, I, I actually just coincidentally, uh, but, but before I, I knew that you were going to come on the show, maybe a week before was the first time I heard of this show and Juliet. Mm-hmm. So I had a friend that was posting pictures of, you know, going to see the show and all that. But, and, uh, <laughs> first thing that ca- came to my mind is, uh, I don't know how many, if you or any, how many listeners have seen the movie, uh, and, and got to keep in mind, this is before, before I listened to the recording or saw the show, but I saw it's a new take on Rome, you know, on Juliet and it had pop music. I don't know if you know the movie hot fuzz, you know, it's with, uh, I'm familiar. I've never seen it. Though. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a, you know, it's a action comedy mystery, but a whole lot of comedy in it. Mm-hmm. And there's an amateur production of Romeo and Juliet and it's, intentionally really bad acting and it ends with the whole cast singing love fool the love me love me yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i start and when i heard the pop songs mixed in there i was like i hope this is better <laughs> and and it's uh you know again having not seen the show just heard the cast recording and it's it's quite a bit better and and my first thought was it's interesting that you kind of chose songs from a particular time period but they all seem to go together and then i didn't realize until i read all oh, these are all by the same person i was kind of ignorant of how yeah i mean i've, I've heard the name max martin before but i was ignorant of how extensive his footprint has been in the world of pop music 
Yeah. yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, to have your finger on the pulse for that long, you know, right? Some people, you know, it's it's a it's rarefied air to just have one number one song and then to like smash after smash over decades is pretty wild, right? Um, and the fact that you know the the Backstreet Boys sound very different than Katy Perry sounds very different than Celine Dion sounds very different than Ariana Grande and The Weeknd, like like max and his love for melody and just his love for like shaping and developing an artist and kind of finding their vision i mean that's sort of the common thread through it and yeah it's in a an embarrassment of riches the catalog um and it's also really cool for the show that we were able to pick sort of the things that serve the story the best as opposed to just like oh he you know there are like there are five songs and we really got to milk them because that's all people will know. I mean, we're we're have such an uh, amazing luxury that like some of the songs that we picked are the biggest songs in the universe from Baby One More Time to I Want It That Way to Roar, things that were like the mega mega Oh baby baby how was I so But we also have stuff um what do you Slow it down. What do you want from me? And uh, songs that are uh, l- still hits, but kind of lesser known ones. And it's just, uh, we, we were able to kind of over time uh, pick things that worked in the story the best. And again, shout out to David West Reed, the writer, for being so clever to kind of thread these together. And also for, you know, uh, the sort of the common link that uh, Shakespeare was pop of that time it was meant for mainstream audiences and i think it's history that sort of elevates it over time and you know rightly so uh but it's the same sort of thing about pop music that like it can seem surface level it can seem pedestrian in a lot of ways but if you dive in and if you really explore what it takes to like make a hit a hit there is some absolute artistry behind it and you know uh it's a testament to Max that, yeah, the the amount of detail that gets poured into these uh, that makes them hits. And so there's kind of a parallel between these two forces that kind of are making uh, art for the masses and kind of how it shapes culture over a long period of time. So the idea of Shakespeare being pop, the idea of Max being the Shakespeare of this generation and kind of seeing what happens from there. Uh, there's definitely a high degree of relatability with you know someone like max so he's had a by any measure a very high degree of success but at the same time if i was to just randomly ask quote some songs to people in the street if i said you know baby one more time i want it that way yeah. uh if i was just to name some of the songs in the show i'm sh- uh, i'm sure that they would say britney spears backstreet boys mm-hmm. Katy perry and if i asked them who wrote the music I bet a lot of them would probably say, well, they wrote it, you know, I mean, because uh, especially, you know, I'm, I'm Gen X and I grew up in the era of, uh, you know, bands writing their own music, which is kind of, it's actually an interesting pocket of music history because it fits in between times where songwriters did a lot of work. Cause if you go, you know, Frank Sinatra didn't write his own songs, for example. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah exactly. And, you know, the, most of your pop, singers today actually you know some like taylor swift's kind of a notable exception you know she writes her own songs but um most of your big hits are written by somebody so kind of like a pit musician kind of like 
the arranger and orchestrator of a musical rather than the composer, you're doing a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of major creative work, but you're not always seen. You know, you're you you may be working with some popular things like Sesame Street and uh, and Juliet. But I mean, now correct me if I'm wrong. You probably are okay to go in a restaurant without being hounded by people wanting your autograph. <laughs> yeah, it, it, believe it or not, that's possible. <laughs> yeah, um, I can still enjoy uh, uninterrupted lunch these days. Yes, right. So, so obviously, you guys collaborated to choose the songs that you wanted, and and I assume that that collaboration was with the book writer, you, because the book writer is probably incorporating the script and well can't really incorporate the script into the songs you can incorporate the songs into the script (laughs) you know because the songs lyrics are done and so forth but um i i imagine you know then you have to decide so one of the things that i like about the cast recording is that i can tell that you guys have made some harmonic choices as well as of course a, a fixed instrumentation that makes it sound like it comes from the same musical, you know? So, um, if I, if for some reason I'd lived under rock for the last 20 years and I didn't know these songs, I didn't read the credits, I might think that they were original songs for the musical. Mm -hmm. So, um, so so I, you know, after you choose chosen the songs, I'm sure that may have been the easy part. So what are some decisions that you made early on? Like, when did you, Maybe give us a history of the pit. Like, obviously, I assume you started piano only, you know, just to get things going. But how did that develop? Like, did you, was it bigger before uh, before you arrived at your final number? Or was it smaller and then you added to it? Just, what's the history of the instrumentation? Yeah, of course. So I think it was always important to us early on of, like, fusing, fusing the world of pop that lives inside a computer mostly of like whether it's synthesizers or other sort of drum machines stuff that's like so finely crafted but with the the dynamics of live musicians and kind of putting it into a setting where human beings can execute it um and we always early on bill and i were thinking about like what little what little things can kind of tie you to the period at least even just subliminally and we began, you know, there's like little moments of harpsichord and then we, we really, and, and nylon guitar and other things like that. But very quickly we realized that a nucleus that could tie us through is the... Because it can give us an extra like orchestral layer even when we're at our most pop moments like it can give us our most like i don't know like live and let die like just epic kind of sound but then it can give us our most uh like balladesque and like legit kind of sound as well and i to me the whole show is kind of oscillating between uh our very like narrative and theater driven stuff and then the like gut punch nostalgia this is exactly how you know this song. I think one of the most amazing things about this show is that uh, it's not just done with like the blessing of Max, but Max being directly involved. One of the coolest things in the universe was early on getting sent all the stems and all the multi-tracks of everything. Mm. So when we do certain songs, when we start uh, It's My Life by Bon Jovi, it's not just sort of kind of the talk box sound that's the iconic opening riff. It's the exact one. It is, it is. 
and whether that's a snare drum, whether that's a synthesizer, whether that's other stuff, we have access to the vault. And then the next step is kind of channeling that through how we execute it through our musicians. The size of the band is nine. It's a rock band plus a string quartet. Okay. And so we kind of like are able to use permutations of these things and then everyone at once um, in, in a lot of different ways that sometimes it is a drummer playing samples on an SPD because it needs to be these exact sounds that come through. And then sometimes it's drum sets. Sometimes it is uh, piano-driven kind of things. And then sometimes I'm playing a synth, I'm playing an organ, I'm playing other things that come through. Um, and yeah, it's, it's all about sort of channeling those things. I think in our initial music lab, we had 11 because we had an extra guitarist and a percussionist. But then I believe it was the size of the theater in London that uh, had us go to nine. And so it was a slight restructure for a couple songs for nine. But then it was it was a real sweet spot for us to, to orchestrate for that because it was very easy to think about it of, yeah, rock band, string quartet, and how we kind of use those flavors throughout. So, uh, you know, string quartet, two violins, viola, cello, and... Yeah. Um, Two keyboards and one guitar? Is that what you ultimately have? Two keyboards, one guitar, bass with uh, synthesizer, uh, drums with SPD. And we have an absolutely incredible band that's slaying this night after night. Right. Um, And and it sounds like, uh, you know, just listening to the cast recording, you know, just trying to imagine this being executed live, I assume that you, you know, in addition to playing, you know, notes live, you it sounds like probably at least one, but maybe both keyboardists, you probably have some key triggering going on, some Ableton or something similar to that. Yeah. So there's sort of a hodgepodge of certain different things. There is a little bit of key triggering business for keys too, for a couple, uh, a couple max kind of splashes of things. Um, but then, yeah, we're living in pop land. So like Ableton is a big part of things. And just even, even in stuff that doesn't have a lot of density of tracks or anything like that, like just staying on click and kind of maintaining the, like, uh, yeah, there's certain things that kind of need the rigidity of the, of the click to, to translate for, for our ballads in the show, we are off click. We are, you know, we are the, the band that we are. Um, and there's plenty of songs in the show that breathe and have flex, but when we're four on the floor, when we're really, really doing it, Ableton is live. And yeah, it's about like the, the, you know, drums are still playing drum sounds, but it is those like little kind of what I call like pixie dust of, of other things that kind of surround it. And that stuff lives, uh, on the track, the stuff that's like risers and whooshes that get you towards downbeats or impacts on downbeats and other sort of like things that uh are very time specific and sound specific kind of live there but yeah it's all it's all sort of things that fuse together but it is our band crushing it all the time as the main main nucleus of everything right um as i was listening to these songs and now i'm you know again gen x so some of these songs were were more familiar to me than sure, you know yeah. than you know some of the ones that i, I you know, before I stop listening to the radio, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, it, but, but you know, I, I felt like they were all kind of familiar. But the ones I recognized uh, the most, I really liked some of the harmonic choices that you all, all made. A lot of like chord subs, you know, substitutions, you know, and, and so forth. And um, 
you know, I, I, this, this, I don't want to get into like overly technical theory, sure. you know, for, for, for this particular podcast, but, sure. uh, you know, how much of that was you, how much of it was Bill and, uh, and did, well, how much of it was Max, you know, in, in terms yeah. of like, just kind of coming up with some inventive ways to retell it in a harmonic language. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think I, I can't help it with a background in jazz and loving expensive chords and got to sneak a few in there if it's yeah. musically possible, but it all has to kind of serve the melody. And I think the, the, the best barometer of that is, is Max. And so, you know, we played him stuff and, uh, there was a lot of stuff he liked and then he was, uh, very helpful about other things. I mean, I think the biggest thing is we didn't change melodies. We didn't change the the like the thread of the melody. The only th notable exception to that is uh, the song "Problem" in Act Two, which the chorus of that song is usually a whisper. It's like a like a kind of chanted whisper, and that kind of thing. I again credit to Bill. He knew that that would kind of die on the vine on on stage. That like whispering by and large just wouldn't translate like if you if you did that a one-to-one -one translation that would not feel exciting on the stage so we needed to melodicize that and so he came in with a melodization of what that hook could be and then again it's kind of like us passing a, a quick volleying of ideas back and forth and how we do that and i think there are different things uh it, it's it's almost tough to tell in the soup of who started certain things but like problem definitely I think other chord stuff, I, I, I would be inclined to say if there's a sneaky chord in there, that's me at the piano kind of sneaking that in through workshops and seeing if it if it stays. Yeah. Um, and um, it's also just, you know, pop music is by its nature and the, like, I, I don't say this with any, uh, like, disrespect or there's no slander with it pop music is repetitive like yeah. that is the crux of pop music is sort of like earworming its way into your your brain and your heart and all, all the things uh but theater by its nature like repetition is tough like you don't want to necessarily come back to the same exact thing and if you do you need to be able to say it kind of a different way or it needs to mean a different thing and so i think a lot of the times that you hear different harmonic language if you hear other kind of uh orchestrational zhuzhes as it were that's because if we're returning to the chorus what can we do to kind of lift it what can we do to kind of change it if it's baby one more time yeah that like we kind of keep it in this um you know it's it's a very minor song and we decide you know, it's juliet's i want in the piece and how can we make it it's most like emotionally driven thing and so we try to give this like cinematic kind of rise to it the chords kind of walk up through a lot of the choruses that's stuff that you know the the harmonics are mostly ish the same but like bass motion is and just like little things that we can do uh, to kind of tweak and tweak as we come back to themes and melodies. Yeah, and all these things that you're saying, you know, it's justification for why you don't just license all the songs and play them at specific points. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's the kind of a 
my my background is more you know in in terms of what I'm more familiar with is film. You know, I mm-hmm. love film scoring, and you know that's part of the art of it is twisting and you know shaping the music around what's going on in in that case on screen but in this case on stage um so yeah i mean that's exactly what <laughs> yeah you're doing. and i mean it's 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 such a long period of time between certain songs that like the sonics even of the original would be so different if you hit play on baby one more time and then play on roar back to back like just even the difference in the language of program drums has changed so much in that time and like max has evolved this the sound of and all the sound has evolved mostly because he changes it with everything that he does and he changes the landscape with everything that he does right. um but the 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 thread that our musicians and having a band gives us the ability to kind of walk quickly between decades you know and i again like watching people watch it and what i love that certain folks in the show could be much more familiar with certain periods of of max and really like uh the early britney and the the boy band era could be on more people's radar but then less familiar it's amazing to watch um uh to watch like families come where uh it could be the parents had the boy band posters on the wall and the kids know katy perry and that, that there's that much time between but i also love watching people that the music doesn't come for free at all that they have no connection with it when older folks come and they're just watching it to watch it and the music has to stand on its own it has to just be a cohesive score and i think that was part of the the impetus i mean i i there was never any doubt about having live musicians and that's just the testament to them of like how credible can you make this 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 piece and yeah uh, having a, a amazing band is is the the linchpin of that well, I definitely want to come back to the band in just a moment, but I want to chase one more thread before, or go back to one previous sure, thread before sure. I forget. And and that is just, you know, we talked about you have keyboard triggers, and that's just programming the computer and kind of mapping out that, because I've I've only had one two-part episode on this podcast, and it was all about keyboard programming, <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's such a sophisticated thing. I mean, we have main stage, we have, we have technology to help. But I haven't asked anybody who's arranged before planning that out. You have to, you know, plan like, you know, how many sounds you're going to use, uh, how much time you have to switch with, which with main stage, you know, you really don't need very long, you know, or, you know, something like that. You, if you've got a foot pedal, you're usually good to go and you can layer things and so forth. But uh, whose job did that fall to to map out the keyboard parts and and was it the same person that had to program the keyboards for the show? Yeah, I mean, shout out to Fidge Adams, shout out to Randy Cohen. Fidge was the initial programmer in London, so this this piece started out in London. And uh, yeah, when Bill and I were orchestrating, we were sending scores to Fidge, who was the keyboard programmer. Uh, and he was translating, uh, you know, there are certain things that directly referenced the original songs. And then it's like, can you match this? And then there are certain things where like Bill and I, I, if you combed through our score, the sort of names of pianos and pads and other, other things get kind of hilarious names as they end up going on. And, uh, he did a fantastic job of just translating kind of what we were thinking for whether it's a pad, whether it's an organ, whether it's a, a synthesizer lead. Uh, so, uh, keys one, my setup has a Nord stage in front of me and it's mostly 
piano driven with a few notable organ and pad and uh, other sort of exceptions or other kind of layered exceptions but keys two uh, that chair is monstrous and shout out to Haley Bennett for for wrangling it and anyone who's come in to play that chair um, it th- that kind of oscillates between being responsible for playing certain uh, samples like it, the whether it's a talk box of it's my life whether it's other sort of iconic things that need to be uh, triggered from the keys uh, but also like sonic kind of glue of organs and pads and other kind of poly synths that that rig has uh, an 88 key controller on the bottom and a, a profit synthesizer on top. So we're like actually using analog synthesis as well. And again, I mean, the luxury of this thing is that we're working on this show with Max, who remembers the synthesizer presets, who remembers all the patches from everything. And so when the Juno patch is not right, he comes in and <laughs> is able to tweak the knobs or able to kind of come in and uh, and help tweak things. But uh, Fidge did the initial programming and the handling of stuff, and then Randy has handled it in New York. Uh, and it's it's a lot. Keys 2 is a very dense chair of, uh, you know, multiple patch switches and so many layers. Um, my chair is slightly more piano-driven, so I can be a little more heads-up and conduct the show at the same time um, and just be a little bit more mindful of, like, being uh, present with the actors and stuff that I'm not constantly patch-switching quite quite as much during all of it because i'm also firing ableton so there's a lot of kind of all limbs octopus all the time so my chair is a little more piano heavy okay you uh you just mentioned Haley bennett you know on keys two yourself on keys one uh you know it is life in the pit i like to acknowledge the pit so uh, let's uh let's name who's your other principals uh, that are playing this show night after night with you of course, Sam Merrick on the drums, Mike Bono playing the guitar, Alex Eckert playing the bass and the synth bass, MJ Still playing uh, our, our concert master, Violin 1, Maria M, Violin 2, Ina Paris on viola, uh, Adele Stein on cello. It's an amazing, amazingly, embarrassingly talented band. Right. So, so I hope those, you know, uh, yeah, th- this audience is, uh, I, I, I don't have a a hundred percent clear picture of it, but uh, I do know a lot of pit musicians listen to this, so they're of course you know <laughs> appreciative of that. But I do think I have a lot of pe- fans that are just theater fans, and sure. you know this is where they get to hear about it. So, you know, I just encourage all of you, you know, take take notice of the pit. You know, next time you should go to the show because uh, it, it's really good. Uh, so, I guess one last question uh, sure. that I did want to want to ask. I, I I know that cast recordings you know, sometimes happen fairly early in the process, you know, some, mm-hmm. sometimes a little bit later, but what's changed about the show? What, you know, what, are there things you did specifically for the cast recording that maybe got modified for the final product? Yeah, I'm sure there's various things that kind of fall into that category. I mean, by and large, it's the same um, because we were well into tech, I want to say, or at least the later part of rehearsals when we were in London. So the show was mostly the show. Um and then, you know, we made a cast recording in London, and then we made another cast recording in New York. So again, it's uh, there's even subtle changes, UK to US, uh, just a little bit of arrangement tweaks and a little bit of, you know, learning lessons from the UK, bringing them to the US. Um, it's It's tough to bring music that is so... Uh, flexible night after night into a studio setting, which needs to be like you need to uh, 
lock it in. I'm thinking of our one of our big ballads, That's the Way It Is, that happens in Act 2, uh, sung by Betsy Wolf, who's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the ending of that song kind of... Most of the song is tempo, but the end is very rubato and has uh, a big stop in the middle. And so figuring out how to execute those sort of things in a studio context uh, was its own sort of set of challenges. And we also, you know, a lot of cast recordings get done kind of the band all sits there they play it over a couple days they pick the best take and that's about it and then the vocals get laid on top but in the world of max that's that's not possible you need to put much more magnifying glass on stuff and it's a it's a luxury it's an amazing luxury to have so we're tracking rhythm section first we're adding other things we're tracking the strings by themselves we're really like fine tooth comb everything and everything from the way you know the the microphones that are placed on it and again our amazing engineer michael ilber is like very uh detailed with everything so there's so much care given to it but that uh that level of detail uh presents its own sort of challenges in executing it uh over the course of many weeks as opposed to just oh we all just played together once um but as far as arrangements that changed, I think it's a, a little bit more of there are certain songs that in the show don't button. We don't get applause and we kind of transition into underscore or other things, but on a record that would be pretty underwhelming. So we uh, tend to button things up on yeah. on the cast recording and just make sure that things have endings um, and yeah, kind of translate the best that they could uh uh, on a recording all uh, all of that is wonderful i know if this if this was like you know a, a tim fair style podcast or joe rogan or someone we could go two and a half three hours i know yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah. several <laughs> threads we didn't cover like you of course work with the actors and that's its own conversation and i know that yeah, you've got course. a great cast and uh the one observation i just make uh, and i don't know if, anyone, if someone's pointed this out to you but you're kind of relative lack of professional theater experience it's probably proven an asset in the creative aspect of the show because i think you know a lot of times you get into kind of an echo chamber when it comes to creativity and you you were able to bring kind of and plus you know you know having max you know you know you're bringing this true pop influence into the theater which i think is uh one of the really attractive aspects of yeah of the creation. i think i you know theater has been a really interesting uh like form to to learn i i've done these jobs separately i've worked with a vocalist i have shaped a performance in a studio i have sort of i've led a band i have i've done all sorts of sep- these jobs separately but theater is about those things all fire in tandem all at the same time um and yeah it's juggling uh giving notes to actors and maintaining performance there and then still playing uh playing the show with the musicians it, it's a sort of a wearing all hats all the time kind of thing. Um, but I think coming from the outside, it was, uh, I, I like to think that I was helpful because it, uh, it, I was the, the music director of the show needed to be someone that could open up pro tools and chop stuff up from the stems and also deal with finale. And I think a lot of like those, some of those things live apart and th- this show sort of like swirls all those universes together of like, stuff in the studio landscape and then stuff that appears as dots and dashes on a page. Um, and so th- that that's 
those two things are much closer together in our show. And I think my job is to marry those constantly. Right. I know I'm like four questions past when I said last (laughs) question, Uh, but it just just occurred to me, you know, talked about all the stuff that you have to do. So what happens when on your nights off, does Haley associate conduct or do you, uh, does she move to your chair and someone subs Mm -hmm. for her? Is that how that works? Exactly, exactly. Haley is the associate. And so, you know, part of my job is giving notes on a regular basis. So I'll step out into the front of the house. Um, I'll listen at the sound booth. I'll take notes. I'll, whether it's noting uh, musicians, whether it's noting the actors, that's a big part of the the job. Uh, And so she will play a lot of those shows, but we also have many talented uh, subs that come in and do it. It's, It's really, that's one of the most amazing things to kind of learn about Broadway is not only the musician t- sh- we're so lucky to have the musicians that we have in our pit on a regular basis but then also meeting the folks that can just kind of come in and then they're playing on three other shows at the same time and they still come in and give such a detailed and great performance on this it's it's a really uh fantastic thing to kind of watch and kind of s- see happen in real time it's really amazing right uh, okay, so these will literally be the last two questions that I have right, for you today. Right. So the first one is, uh, do you have any other projects going on that you can chat about when you're not doing Anne Juliet? Sure. I'm sort of just coming up for air a little bit um, uh, now that we're, we're still in the, the throes of Tony season, which is really amazing. And we're, we announced a, a tour that we're going around the, the country at the end of next year, and we're in Australia. So there's been a hundred different things for just Anne Julia. Um, but I'm starting to work with new uh, theater artists that I'm excited about, and those things are a little too, too early to talk about. Okay. I also have a musical that I have written the music for, along with a fantastic co-composer and writer, uh, Andrea Daly, and that's in its very, very early stages. Um, but yeah, all exciting things that are in their very seedling kind of stage. And so we'll see, we'll see how things develop. Okay, great. And the last question is, uh, you know, where can people follow you if they want to, you know, see what, see when, when these things come about, yeah, what's yeah. going on? Sure. Uh, so I still keep a Twitter active at key of Dom on Twitter. Um, and, uh, other than that, come to the Sondheim, come see Anne Juliet, say hi, and <laughs> say okay. hi afterwards. Um, I have a website. There's a contact form there if you did want to reach out. Uh, but yeah, uh, pretty easy to find, uh, both digitally and in person these days. Okay, great. All right. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you about just the whole creative process and getting to know you. So, uh, so thank you for coming on board today. Yeah. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. And that's going to wrap up episode 78. I greatly appreciate Dominic for joining me today and just want to say thank him for that. And if you're still with me uh, and you're and you've been listening to Life in a Pit in a while, just want to chat just for a little bit to just catch up to speed uh, about what's been going on with the podcast. I said a little bit in the last bonus episode of, you know, mainly what's been going on is my my other podcast the Musician Toolkit, it's going very well. It's keeping me very busy, and I've been finding ways to get ahead on it. And And I've finally gotten a few weeks ahead to where I think every now and then I can piece together an episode for Life in the Pit to keep it going. If you go back to last year and listen to episodes number 75 that I did about uh, called Dare to be Seen, that was an episode that really wasn't about the pit itself. And I said that that's the type of episode 
that you're more likely to find on the Musician Toolkit podcast. So that when I do Life in the Pit episodes from that point going forward, it was going to be very focused and strictly about the pit or very closely related as much as possible. And so I do have a few guests that I'm going to try to get in touch with to come on every so often, but I still can't tell you what kind of schedule to expect. I would say, I mean, there were, this is the third episode for the month of June after having no episodes at all for the month of January through May. So that just shows you that it's not very consistent at the moment. In my ideal world, I would still try to get you an, a new episode every one, well, every month if I could, but, you know, try not to go more than two months without a new episode. That's the, again, that's the bad news if you really enjoy new content of this type. But the good news is I'm going to do my best to make sure that they are interviews like today and that they have everything to do with playing in the pit and theater. If you, if you know of interesting guests that would love to come on and, and chat with me, feel free to send me a message. And you can do that as a DM on the social media links that I'll give at the very end of this episode or through my website at lifeinthepitpod.com. As of right now, I do not have a plan for episode 79, but I'm going to see how things go. At the same time, I do say if you have not checked out the Musician Toolkit, I do think it is a podcast that if I was to just estimate with no mathematical accuracy at all, I would be willing to say that at least 90% of you would love it. So if you haven't checked it out, that one is active every week. A lot of the same concepts of musicianship we're talking about is being talked about over there. And in fact, it was this podcast that inspired the other one. It was things that pit musicians kept telling me was important as tools of their trade, basically, that helped them to become the type of musician that could get this type of job. That's what we talk about over there. So anyways, that's all that I will do as far as pitching that podcast. As far as this one, keep following. It's not done. It's just going to be very slow from here on out. There may come a time that I'll actually pick up the frequency. Uh, but there also may be, like there was to begin this year, a few months at a time where there are no new episodes. But if you'll just please keep following and, uh, you know, keep checking your feed every so often and just see if there's a new episode. And I will let you know when one drops, especially on the Instagram and Facebook pages. And that segues nicely into the end of this episode. So as a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. And you can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. There's also a TikTok at David Lane Music. As always, a special thanks to Mark Perillo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can subscribe, find out more about the podcast, or leave feedback through lifeinthepitpod.com. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app or Spotify, and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.